Thank you, Nolan and Jenny and Rhoda. Appreciate that. Uh, didn't have Nolan around here for a few weeks and didn't like having him gone. So we're glad he's back, but also that he's willing to continue to serve and, and share, share his voice. So, All right. Take your Bibles, if you would, now and turn to John chapter 1. Um, my intention one more time, looking to, to finish up John chapter 1 now. But uh, it's been... Rich for me, I hope it has been for you as well, as we've, as John just gives us so boldly, so clearly, who Jesus is. He's going to give us a gospel. There have been three other gospels already written, and, and quite, a, quite a while before John came around to, to writing his gospel. And as he approaches it, he comes at it from a very different angle, gives us lots of, of material that's not in the other three Gospels. And he, and he tells us right off the bat that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God. So be ready for that, he seems to say. And he gives us the testimony of John the Baptist, who came ahead of time, as, as had been predicted in the Old Testament. He came... And he, and he was the one who prepared the way, called people to repentance, to be ready for the coming of the Messiah, to be the coming of the one who had been uh, predicted and promised to come. But he also told us that he was not that Messiah. He was not the prophet that was talked about in, in Deuteronomy, another way of talking about the Messiah. But he was pointing towards him and last, last week, as we came, we, we saw him pointing out again that Jesus is not only God, but he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here, this one who is, is God in the flesh came to take our sins upon himself and was willing to, to die the penalty that we deserve, just like all those Lamb pictures throughout the Old Testament, whether it was, was Abel with his first sacrifice, or Abraham when the ram was offered in the place of his son Isaac, or, or the daily sacrifices, the two lambs that were sacrificed day in and day out. Jesus was the fulfillment of all those pictures that, that death was going to come to those who rebelled against God. But God provided a way that we didn't have to bear that, he sent his son to take that on himself, bear the punishment, and then rise again gloriously in order to offer to us the forgiveness of our sins, to offer to us eternal life that had become his when he, when he was raised from the dead. But he also told us that, that Jesus, he calls him the Word, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent with us. And so it wasn't that he was God above, uh, just coming in and, and, and being over the top of us, although he is infinitely greater than, than all of us. But he came and lived with us and related to us. And as we move into to this next section in verse 35, which is a little bit of an overlap from last week, we see Jesus very personally connecting with some men that he's going to 
pour his life into, that he's going to train, that he's going to, to teach in a very intimate way. But watch that he doesn't just come and say, okay, you, 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 and you, yeah, come and, and do this. But in these early examples, you see him connecting with these men as they are. So if you follow along with me, I'm going to read verses 35 through 51 of John chapter 1. And again, the next day, John, speaking of John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and he, as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael and coming to him, coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So there's a lot going on. A lot of action happens in this, in this section. And it's a section that, that John, the apostle who wrote it, wanted it to be personal and vivid. And I also want to mention, too, that this actually happened prior to Jesus going to the disciples who were in their fishing boats and saying, come and follow me, and they left everything. Uh, one source that I read or heard said this could have been up to a year before that. So understand, when Jesus said, come and follow me, and they left everything, they'd already been interacting with him. They'd already had some exposure to him, and it started back here during the, during the ministry of John the Baptist as Jesus begins to cultivate a relationship with these men. And one of the reasons he, that John wants this to be uh, personal and vivid is that he was there. You probably didn't see John's name. 
because it's not there. But that's the way John is throughout this whole gospel. He doesn't mention himself by name in, in his own... He has other people in the story mention him. But he, he never mentions himself. I think it's a matter of, of humility. But you notice in verse 40, one, the two that follow Jesus here in this first section, says one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Well, what about the other one? Well, as we follow that, notice that pattern throughout John, it, it's very, very almost certain that it's John. This was John starting to follow Jesus for the very first time. And, and John, throughout this, this next, or this section, uh, uses something, and I've mentioned it once before, but it, it, it's a little technical, but it, it's called a historical present tense. And all that means is, is that he talks, and it doesn't come through in your English translation, because in English we don't do that. But he talks about something that's already happened in the present tense, which in Greek means something that is going on and is, is going to continue going on. And so if you, used, if you did that in English, you know, on an English paper, your, your teacher would have marked it all red. You can't do that. You can't talk about things that happened in the past in the present tense. But it was something that they did in Greek to say, I want this to, to be alive to you, as though it's happening right here. And if you're using the New American Standard Version, there's a star or an asterisk next to the verbs every time it does that. And you'll see particularly the word said and the word found in this section have that. So you don't have to remember all those details. Just remember that John wanted this to be vivid, like you're right there with him as these things are happening. And he wanted it to be very personal because it was a dramatic, life-changing day for him. In fact, we see it in verse 39 that he even remembers the exact time of day when he first met Jesus. He talks about the 10th hour. So in verses 35 through 39, we have Andrew and John following Jesus. And it's interesting, and I mentioned this a little bit, but John the Baptist, you'll notice in verse 35, it's, it says that John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus. And the, and the verb that's used there isn't just your normal word for looked, but it indicates more intensity than the regular word for looked. And, and John, John kind of does that through this section as well. He doesn't just use your generic term for looked. But here is one where he's look, looking like this is, this is him. There he is as John looks at Jesus. It's like slowing down or freezing everything for a moment to bring attention to it. And John, I think John the Apostle, as he's writing this, wants us to consider how important this moment is for John the Baptist. He's now passing on those who have believed his testimony to the one that he's been testifying about. And so when his two disciples, John and Andrew, follow Jesus, it's not a defeat but in fact, it's a success. That's exactly why he was there, was to point people to Jesus and to send them to him. That was his whole purpose. The only thing you have to wonder about here is why all of John's disciples didn't up and follow Jesus. But that was his goal. And so John and Andrew follow along behind Jesus, and Jesus sees them, in fact, it's another one of those interesting words for to, to see. He takes note of, 
He turns around and he asks them a question. What do you seek? By the way, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in this, this gospel. It's a very important question. I mean, that, that those who would come after Jesus, those who would follow him, he wants to know, what are you after? What is it you want in following after me? Because people have all kinds of interesting motivations. Jesus is still asking that question. Now you're here, you're listening to John's gospel, uh, you showed up at church. That's a good place to be. It's a good place to come for truth. But Jesus asks this question, what are you, what are you seeking? What are you after here? Are you just here for social connections? Are you just here because somebody else wants you to be here? Are you here for affirmation? What is it, what is it you want? Because it's really important what you come for and who you see Jesus as. Remember all of those, those things that were, that were uh, told us about who Jesus is. So are you coming after him to get from him your own desires and just the things that you want? Jesus wanted to know that. And as he, as, as he uh, is answered in verse 38, the middle of the verse, it says, they said to him, Rabbi. So first of all, that they do something good. They, they acknowledge that he is a teacher. Rabbi was a spiritual teacher, someone who would teach them about God. So they recognize that. And, and, and by the way, notice that, that John translates for us. Because he is expecting his audience to be a mixed group. Yeah, some Jewish people who will understand the word rabbi, but some Greek Roman people who don't know what rabbi means, so he translates it. And we'll find John throughout this whole gospel whispering in our ear to help us understand those things. Rabbi, what's this? Which means teacher. Where are you staying? Which seems like a little bit of, a, of an unusual thing to say, but really what it, what it is, is is their answer. Their answer is, Jesus, we want to be with you. You are a teacher. We want to be with you. We want you to teach us. We're, in essence, submitting ourselves to you as students. So where are you staying so we can come and be with you? Because Jesus does care about our motives and why we come to him. Turn with me for an example of that to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 22. <clears throat> there it says, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus saw this. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt beside him and asked him, Good teacher! What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he, and they, and he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And here Jesus cared about the motives, right? He said, you need to be like these children. They just want to be with me. When they were let, let go, they climbed up on his lap. Jesus touched them. Jesus cared for them. They just wanted to be with him. The rich young ruler, as we often call this man, he wanted approval for his works. He wanted Jesus to say, oh, yes, you've done everything perfectly. Of course you will have be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus zeroed in on the place where, knowing his heart, knew he wasn't going to be able to do it on his own. He said, go give away all of your belongings. Not because that's something that we have to do in order to be in the kingdom of God, but he knew that what he wanted more than being with him, more than receiving eternal life from Jesus, is he wanted his things. He wanted his money. He cares about the reason we come, because when we come for those other reasons, when we look come wanting him to approve, give the stamp of approval to, oh, you've done, enough, you've done all you can, so you're in. It's like, no, that's, that's not what it's about. And so when he turns around and talks to these two men, what do you want? He approves their request of being able to be with him. They humble themselves and say, teach us. And he says something else that's extremely profound. Come and see. And there's great wisdom here in what Jesus says to them. He doesn't try to present a convincing argument to get them to follow him. Their motives are in the right place. And so he invites them to come and experience who he is. And the implication of this passage is, is that then what they did was they went and spent many hours with him. Possibly overnight. And based on what they do next and going to find other people and the, and the declarations that they make, it seems likely that he took them to the Old Testament scriptures about himself and showed them who he was. He says, you remember what the prophets said about who would come? And laid that out for them. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to know him. And they wanted to know what this was all about that he was doing. If he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they wanted to know him. And so you see the outcome of that then in verse 40. When it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And so it's interesting here, we have, we're, we're introduced to Andrew by way of Simon Peter, even though Simon is the one that comes later. And that just indicates that this was written later. And most people would know who Simon Peter was. Uh, he, was, he was just one of those who was, was so outgoing and, and his, his gifts were very public 
and he was very loud about how he did things. People knew who Simon Peter was. And so even here in his gospel, in order for people to understand who Andrew is, he says, oh, he's Simon Peter's brother. Simon, as we see later, hasn't even gotten the name Peter from Jesus yet. You know, so it's probably the story of Andrew's life, right? Went around being Simon's brother. But he doesn't seem to mind. In fact, his brother is the first one he thinks of what he's, what, with what he's learned. He spent time with Jesus, and Jesus has explained himself. And he's like, I've got to tell Simon about this. And he goes and he finds Peter. Or Simon, I mean, who will be called Peter. And though they're very different, they have the same focus. They're both looking for and expecting the long-awaited Messiah. And that's what he says. I found, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ, which means the anointed one in the Old Testament. That's where, again, John whispers in our ear. That means Christ for the Greek speakers. The one who was anointed. And they were, very, they were familiar enough with the prophecies of the Old Testament to know what he was told. He didn't need to explain to them. This was a discussion that they'd already had, these two brothers. When, when's the, when's the, the promised one coming? When's the one who is anointed going to come? And no doubt the times that they were having in Israel sharpened that desire, right? They were under the rule of Rome. They'd been under the rule of empires for a long time. And it seemed like the world was getting all stirred up at this time. So they were eagerly looking for the one who was promised. Can you relate to that? I think we're at a similar spot now. The world, we're looking for Jesus to come back again. And our times should be sharpening us and saying, okay, Lord, what are you doing and what's next on your timetable? Help us to be ready. Help us to be prepared. And it's interesting, Andrew, finding his brother Simon, bringing him to Jesus, that's what we find Andrew doing. Um, throughout the book, you know, a couple other times in the book of John, in chapter 6, and then again in chapter 12, we see Andrew, and that's what he's doing. He's bringing people to Jesus, following and bringing them. But that idea of, of the, the Messiah, the Christ, it's what they, it, was, it means he was the anointed one. That's what they would do with kings. Before they became king, they would pour oil on top of their head and anoint them as king. Before a high priest went into office, they, they would do the same thing. This is the one that God has put his stamp of approval on. And there were a number of different anointed people through the centuries, but especially there was the anointed one spoken of directly in the book of Daniel, in Psalm chapter 2. He was the one to be expected. He wasn't just an anointed one, but he is the one that God would send. And Andrew says to Peter, we found him. We know who he is. Come with us. And so he brings him. And we see that, that, that as uh, Jesus meets Peter, he does something rather odd. Rather shocking. <clears throat> and he looks at Peter and says, I'm going to change your name. 
you will be known as Cephas. And then we get John whispering in her ear. That means Peter. Now I have to whisper in your ear. That means rock. And so he had been known as Simon, which is, is related to the word Shema, which to hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Simon's related to that first word, to hear. So Simon had heard, and Jesus right off recognizes something in Peter and says, I'm going to take you from just one who's heard and responded to make you someone's stable, someone on which others can build, someone on which things can happen. And so you will be known as Peter or Cephas. And by the way, if you look there again, in verse 42, he, speaking of Andrew, brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. There's only a few times where that word looked that we saw earlier is used, where John the Baptist looked at Jesus. Now Jesus looks at Simon in the same way, locks eyes with him. There's an intensity. There's a, let's bring everything down, slow things down, and I have something to tell you. You're going to be changed. That's the idea of a name in Jewish culture. It's not just a handle, but it has to do with your character. In essence, he's, and he says in the future tense, you will be called Cephas or Peter or Rock. I'm sending you in a direction, and I'm preparing you to be something that others can build life on. Not you personally, but you pointing others to Jesus. And we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew 16, 18, after, after Peter makes his bold declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember how Jesus responds to him? You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. You are. Oh. Things are happening in Peter to the point where Jesus says, you not will be Peter, but you are Peter. Now, Jesus, when, when Peter was doing something crazy like he did sometimes, and impulsive, oftentimes called him Cephas. There was a reason for that. It's kind of like, um, did you notice you're kind of drifting back to where you used to be? Take on your, remember the identity that I have for you. Be the person that I have in mind for you. And then, verses 43 through 45, Jesus acts in a purposeful way. It says, the next day he purposed, he chose, he decided to, to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. So Jesus purposely goes from, we heard earlier that he was in Bethany beyond the Jordan, which we're not quite sure where that is, but he purposes to go from there into Galilee. And 11 of his 12 disciples will be from this northern part of the nation of Israel, rather than from Judea. Judea was, was where Jerusalem was, you know, the capital of the ancient kingdom. 
the center of religious worship, where the temple was. And according to the opinion of those who lived in Judea, of course, it was where the more spiritual and sophisticated people were from. Jesus chooses 11 of his 12 disciples from Galilee, not Judea. And the one who came from Judea was Judas, who would betray him. Interesting how Jesus doesn't go the way the world does. He went and found people that just didn't fit the mold. He went and found people that were looked down on, people who you wouldn't expect to be the ones that would do great things. And that's because they wouldn't, but God would do great things through them. Jesus chose people from what's, what was called Galilee of the Gentiles. But then it says also that before this, we have people following Jesus or being brought to Jesus. In this case, Jesus found Philip. And so he starts an action in motion, and he, and he seeks out a man who, by the way, has a Greek name. He's Jewish, but he has this Greek name, Philip, which some of you will appreciate. It means lover of horses. Not your typical Jewish thing, probably somewhat Hellenized. In other words, a follower of Greek customs and things, even though he was Jewish. And he tells him, follow me. Simple as that. And he does. And not only does he follow him, but he says, oh, oh there's, there's somebody else that's got to know about this. Somebody else who has to know this man who has said to me, follow me. And then we have... John inserting this little fact in verse 44. Now Philip was, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And this was a, a, a fishing town up in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. I probably should have put up a map for you, but you can see that in the back of your, of your uh, Bibles. And Bethsaida means house of fish which to me sounds like a, you know, a cheap seafood restaurant. <laughs> but it told about the character of this town. That's what they did for a living. They lived along the sea, and they fished, and they worked hard. And that's what you know, we had from Peter and Andrew. And we have Philip from the same place. And I don't know if you, if you notice... We've got people who are not the intellectual class. They didn't have advanced training, but they did know the scriptures. As a young, young boy grew up in, in Israel, they would all go, go to be taught the scriptures. But there would be ones who would kind of rise to the top, and they would be targeted to be, to be the rabbis, to be the teachers, and they would get special attention from the rabbis. These men were not those boys. They grew up, and when they were teenagers, they started working for their father in his trade. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a noble thing to do. But one of the things I want you to notice is that they knew the Old Testament prophecies. They knew what to expect from the Messiah. That tells me that Although what they primarily did with their life was go out and fish and take care of their nets and sell what they caught and they worked hard, they also knew 
God's Word. And it wasn't because they went home and read their Bibles, because they probably didn't own a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, as Jim has taught in the past in Sunday school, that, that, to have a copy of the Scriptures in those days was, was a rare and expensive thing. What it meant was they were, they were committed to being at the synagogue, to listening to the teaching. They might have had access there to read a copy of the Scriptures, or they, they would have had access there. And we don't know how that played out in each of these lives. But even though these people were not the ones that you would expect to know all this about the Bible, they did. Which tells us they had faithful parents, I think, teaching them God's word from the time that they were old enough to know. Taking them to synagogue, making sure they went to the classes that taught the young boys about God's word. Because they knew it. They understood it, and they believed it because they recognized Jesus when he came. And that's no small thing. They acted by faith in believing those things and following those things. And then Philip, again, wants to go and find someone else. And we're going to stop here in our outline for this morning because I don't want us to rush through Nathaniel, who comes next. What comes next in, in, the, in the rest of this section, we learn about a man named Nathaniel, and you will not see the name Nathaniel in any of the other Gospels. You won't hear about anything that Nathaniel does in any of the other Gospels. But this encounter of Nathaniel with Jesus ought to grip your heart when we get there next week. Uh, because what, how Jesus interacts with him, and though he wasn't from Bethsaida, he was someone who obviously knew God's word. And Jesus is going to interact with him in a different way than he did with the others. And in that same way, he wants to interact with you. Where you're at, with what you know, meeting you the way you need to be met. Now, don't, don't put your expectations on him. He knows how you need to be met. But be eager like these men to respond. To say, oh. I have found the one God sent to bear my sins. I have found the one who is God, and yet a man. I have found the one who welcomes me to put my trust in him and have my life transformed. That's the way Jesus interacted with these men. It's the way he wants to interact with you, where you're at. Maybe you have already put your faith in him, but also remember, as you walk with him, he's still dealing with you in that same way. This is the Jesus that we gather today to worship. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us beyond our ability to grasp and understand. You are such an amazing God and and you love us in ways that just get unfolded again and again in your word. Thank you for, for preserving that for us, for giving it to us, and, and revealing yourself to us in ways we would have never just figured out on our own. Help us to, to believe, to trust, and to, to want to follow you. We ask this in the name of your dear son, Jesus, who loves us. Amen.